1914, August 4th, Britain declares war on Germany. The horses that ploughed Ireland's fields before the outbreak of hostilities were to be as critical to the war effort as the heavy artillery, machine guns and the millions of men. 80% or more of horses killed in the First World War in the British Army were not cavalry horses, they were draft horses. Ireland's renowned hunting horses were sought for the cavalry. Irish horses were needed as well to haul supplies, equipment and ammunition, to move the heavy guns and pull the ambulances. And these were kind of the uglies of the horse world. You know, they weren't glamorous, shiny coated horses you'll see in, in uh, outside Buckingham Palace. These were cobs, hairy-legged, heavy horses who probably had been pulling Guinness barrels out of Guinnesses there in Dublin, you know, and, and were, were drafted up into the army. And these poor guys, you know, weighed down with their loads, maybe 20 stone, 17 stone weight on top of, of, of everything else, trying to get through that type of terrain. They were exposed and vulnerable to shell fire. Not being fast or manoeuvrable horses, when an artillery barrage would have come in, they could have done nothing. You know, they would have just been in the open ground, nowhere to hide, nowhere to cover. You know, you, a horse can't jump into a trench. Vulnerable too to disease and deprivation. The living conditions were harrowing. You know, the skin is prone to sort of mud rash or rain rash or whatever, you know, from, from the irritation of constant wetness. On the eve of World War I, the British Army possessed only 25,000 horses. But by 1917, it had nearly 600,000 horses. The classic Somme, Battle of the Somme terrain would have been the obstacles, the wire and the mud. The mud was so deep in some places that it went down, up over the horses' heads and that was the end of them. So not alone were they shelled and shot and that, but they were sunk in and drowned in the mud. 65,000 of those horses were Irish. The ships that would bring thousands of Irish horses to the muddy fields of Flanders echoed the ships that brought the first war horses to Ireland. The war horse is a very specific term to the medieval war horse. The Normans conquered vast uh, swathes of Europe in the early 12th century, including Ireland, and they relied heavily on these war horses. Ronan Wilson of the Wolf Track Equestrian Centre in Blessington County Wicklow has made the role of the horse in Ireland and at war his passion. Historians have said that the native horse to Ireland at that time was uselessly small. References to Queen Maeve using chariots, you know, we have ideas of Ben-Hur and, and that type of uh, Hollywood image. Um, but these would have been very small horses and only capable of probably pulling a small chariot, not really capable of being ridden. That they're probably like a hobby horse. And this was a famous horse used by the Irish, um, very small horses, very nimble horses, but very outmatched against a heavy cavalry horse in terms of physical weight and physical strength. In the lead up to the war, one of the criteria for British army horses was that they had to be either geldings, castrated male horses who were easier to handle, or mares, female horses who were not in foal. The Normans felt differently. Their war horses were always stallions. They believed that geldings and mares were fit for only women and priests. Stallions are harder to manage, um, but the Normans, they wanted that aggressiveness, uh, natural aggressiveness in them for on the battlefield. 
to bite and kick. In a reflection of the way that their owners famously became more Irish than the Irish themselves, the Norman war horse too fed into the bloodlines of the Irish horse of the 20th century. So what would have happened in, in when the Normans arrived here is their, their horses would have been breeding with Irish horses and you would get this evolution of, of a horse from being a, a small type horse into, into a larger horse, you know. And when the Spanish Armada was wrecked off the west coast in the 15, 1588, some of the Spanish stallions escaped and swamped the shore and covered the Irish mares, which would have been ponies. So the cross of this was the, the Connemara pony, which was a, a bigger pony than the, the native species. One stallion can make a difference to it in an, almost an entire nation. By the 1800s, the Irish horse had evolved and become renowned all over Europe. Lieutenant Colonel Brian McSweeney of the Army Equitation School, based at McKee Barracks in Dublin, is clear on the characteristics that made the Irish horse so sought after. Well, the Irish horse spoke for itself. Uh, a lot of foreign nations came to Ireland specifically to buy the Irish horse because the Irish horse was world-renowned. Soundness, bravery, honesty, ability, and those are the qualities that still persist today. It's straightforward. There isn't any huge difficulty in training the horse to do what it's intended to do. This area here all around is limestone land. It is the Golden Vale. It is top-class land. The limestone soil around Carmi, Buttevant, County Cork, so good for bone formation in horses, made the area an early centre for horse breeding and horse buying, as locals Lillian and Tom Sheehan have documented. The fair is believed to have gone back. There's supposed to be evidence of it being written about in correspondence between King Charles and his army officers about advising where to buy the best horses. And there were three places mentioned in Europe. And uh, Buttevant in Ireland was mentioned in that charter during the 1600s. It included Carimee. We're here at the annual Carmi Horse Fair where uh, horses are traded on the side of the street, which has been happening for hundreds of years. I suppose the best word to describe it is bedlam. Uh, anybody who decides to drive through the town and is unaware of what they're facing, they get the fright of their lives because they end up in their cars inside in the middle of all these horses with their hooves looking and their backsides face to their windscreens. There's never a nod or an email or a telephone call made to organisers. It just happens. I enjoy the fair. I think it's a great event because it's a great social event for the town. People come from all over the country, both the north and from Britain and from France and from the continent, and they come every year. Everywhere you look, there's horses. There's a Palomino pony down there. There's a Canamara pony. You know, you have cobs. You know, it'll be just horses, 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 horses. The supply of Irish horses for war did not start in 1914. The reputation of the Irish horse was well established by then. Ireland had developed a thriving export trade supplying the Belgian, Austrian, Russian and German armies with the much sought after Irish hunter. Carmi lays claim to Napoleon's white charger Marengo 
who carried Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. It's been said for as long as we are around, I know that Napoleon did by his, his charger here, that he led uh, his troops to, to battle on. We haven't the receipt of the, <laughs> the transaction, but it's a part of the history of Botovant as well. He was a white stallion. He was one of the finest equine animals ever seen. He, had, uh, he was a very strong, powerful, with a great presence and even a great personality. That's why they were anxious to acquire him, because they needed the prestige of a good animal leading their army into battle. The Irish horse was by now a status symbol, with a love of riding and racing horses firmly embedded in Irish cultural life. The whole word steeplechase was born here in Busfant. There was two local landowners who had a dispute coming out of, of, uh, of religious service one Sunday morning, or Callan and Blake were their names, and they were disputing as to which one of them had the best horse. So they, said they laid down a, a challenge that they'd uh, race the horses from Butterfield to Donrail and from Steeple to Steeple, the, the Steeple here in Butterfield to the Steeple in Donrail. The Grand National entry is, is actually four and a half miles long and the distance between these two steeples is four and a half miles. So that's how it all started. We never uh, found out who actually won the race. Uh, that was never <laughs> revealed. Butterfield, with its hinterland of horses, was a logical place to build a barracks in the expansion of the British military presence in Ireland. From about 1810 to 1922, the town absolutely boomed. Because every door up and down the street there was supplying goods and needs to the army here in the town and to their families and seed stuff for the, the horses, for the cavalry and stuff. Barracks were built with horses in mind in Irish cities like Dublin as well. So the barracks was originally built by the British. It was completed uh, in 1888. It was called Marlborough Barracks. It's strategically located here, a little bit on, on high ground. It kind of dominates the city a little bit. It was adjacent to the Phoenix Park for manoeuvres. It had direct access to the North Circular Road and thereby the North Wall for sailing away on campaigns. So. British regiments of horses, uh, whether they were cavalry regiments or horse-drawn artillery regiments, they were stationed here and sighted here. Uh, cavalry regiment at full war strength, which was 890-odd horses, uh, this barracks was built primarily to house that amount of horses, mainly Irish-bred horses. The Irish-bred horses in the British cavalry needed riders, and the horse-based pastimes of Ireland provided men with the necessary skills. Siegfried Sassoon, the famous war poet, he was a, he was a, a great hunting man and he tells that when you joined the cavalry before the First World War, there was three classes. You had the men who had never ridden a horse before, the men who had ridden a horse before and the men who had hunted before. The men who had hunted before were the top of the class, much better balance on a horse, much better ability to, to ride a horse. The research of Sean Murphy, a Waterford-based historian, has shown that hunting involved not just the aristocracy, but local farmers, and for good reason. Hunting was a sport that lots of people were involved. It wasn't just necessarily the aristocracy were hunting, which, of course, they did in a, in a, in a big way. They, they were involved solely in providing uh, the hounds and all for the hunt. But strong farmers and small farmers, too, were interested in hunting, and some, pe- some of the small farmers would have uh, kept a, a nice mare that was capable of hunting. If all these other farmers joined in, it meant they were getting free rain over the countryside. They were able to travel farther, like, you know, with, without being uh, harassed by people who objected to hunting. 
and, and a lot of these hunting horses then were suitable for army horses afterwards. The officers lived in the officers' mess and the officers' chargers had stables here in the yard that we're currently located in now. And the horses lived in stalls in the bottom floor of the, of the buildings down the barracks and the soldiers lived above so the, 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 the warmth of the horses underneath kept the soldiers warm above. The skills to ride and handle horses went far beyond the landed classes. A lot of the Irish people were familiar with horses. Tackle a horse, drive a horse, ride a horse, ride wild, deal with wild horses and all. It's the same now as youngsters at the moment drive motor cars. Everybody in the country was able to handle a horse. The pounding match came from the tradition of the steeplechase and these were races, cross-country races, that weren't with, for the aristocracy. These were for the common common people, jumping obstacles, stone walls and ditches. It was away from the gaze, though, of the authorities. It was in the countryside. You know, your, your local magistrate wasn't going to be there. And in fact, some of these were, were really quite violent affairs. If there was a local rider competing against uh, another rider, the locals from the opposing team would throw stones at the guy as he jumped a wall or a, a fence or whatever, maybe putting an obstacle in the way, pulling a, a, a cart in front of a jump. Natural horsemanship, instinctive horsemanship that the Irish would have had for riding cross-country, you know. There was a, a pounding match in County Waterford and there was a, a rider called Black Jack and he rode a horse to settle a bet without a saddle, a bridle and only used a cabbage stalk to guide the horse. The cavalry horse was trained to work together with their horsemen as a team, practising the art of warfare swordsmanship, honed and developed over centuries. Well, I'm mounted up here and we've warmed up the horse and he's just, just got his, like, like a, any athlete, you want to stretch the muscles a little bit, uh, get the blood flowing. Ronan Wilson is a modern-day horseman, but his interest in the life of the horse at war has led him to recreate a cavalry training exercise which he regularly demonstrates to visitors to his stables. OK, well, we're going to do what's called post-practice, practising against a target that's uh, at a kind of a, the level of a, an infantryman and uh, we're going to use the sword against a, a soft target like a, a melon. Drawing swords was the commitment that cavalrymen were making to a charge and it was said that it, you drew swords at the very last moment because you didn't want to tell your enemy what you were about to do. So when you draw, draw your sword out across your, your body and you slope your sword onto, the, onto your shoulder, that allows you to ride the horse at any gait, be it a trot or a canter or a gallop. So we're going to ride on now, shorten up the reins, break into a trot, finally into a canter, go into the guard position. Good boy, good boy. In 1887, as the empire expanded, a remount service was established to buy, transport and train horses centrally for the British Army. No longer would officers and regiments purchase their own. The new Army Corps remount service established a remount facility in Lusk, County Dublin to receive and train horses. They needed about 2,500 horses per year for their peacetime use, you know, to replenish and replace horses. And that was certainly possible in Ireland. I've seen records of upwards of 15,000 horses being shipped out of, of, of various types 
being shipped out of Ireland through Britain just prior to the First World War. The war horse of medieval times was born for the battlefield, literally born for the battlefield. The remounts of the First World War would have been coach horses, tram horses. Electrification was coming in, so a lot of the tram horses that would pull the trams were being decommissioned by the tram companies, so they were great buys for the military. And as war loomed, it was to places like Caramy that the army remount officers came in the balmy days of summer 1914. Me in 1914 was a huge event by all accounts because it, it lasted for a full week outside in the field. People arrived in their horses and traps and probably bicycles or walked from miles and miles around. So you can imagine the atmosphere, hundreds of people, and they walk along because life was much more leisurely that time. And some of them, that were better off, probably had accommodation, but others, I suspect, slipped out by the ditches probably. In mainland Britain, the remount service could commandeer horses at a fair price. In Ireland, it was on a willing seller basis only. Agents working on behalf of the remount service scoured farmyards and fields throughout Ireland for horses. So the agent would bring, he maybe he'd go around the countryside and he'd collect up horses and uh, they were all tied together with string. And this is a term we use today in modern day use for a string of horses. Um, it's like saying a flock of geese or a herd of cattle. It's a string of horses. Breeders and dealers working through agents of the remount service would arrange to bring strings of horses to the ports. My grandfather, O'Donoghue, as a young man, he used to take 10 or 12 of these in tandem into the port in Cork. He'd set off and he'd be on the lead horse with his saddle and his gear and he'd be comfortable enough, I suppose. And the horses then, he used to take them, I think, about a dozen at a time and they'd be tied in pairs and tied onto one another. And there'd be a whole caravan of horses after him. The breakout of hostilities was about to put the remount system and Irish horses under huge strain. I'm haunted by the vision of the thousands of horses being literally herded down towards Waterford Port to get on the boat. Herds of horses were driven down the quays of Irish ports to be loaded on board ships. Several jumped over the railings in panic and drowned. The conditions of the horses in transit horrify John Osborne of the Irish National Stud and a veterinary surgeon. I mean, the ship was then a closed quarters confinement. Uh, yeah. All the ingredients were there for husbandry disaster, if you like, um, as the animals assembled from far and wide, kept in cramped conditions, transported long distances, and then kept in suboptimum living conditions. You know, they were going to suffer high losses before they ever heard a, a gunshot. Probably at that stage, they were terrified horses, like a strange place, unfamiliar territory, and then loaded, then each horse had to be loaded individually. It was, you know, very frightening for the horses at that time, like biting and kicking and screaming, trying to get away from, from where they were, you know. Slung into boats and off to England. With their hooves unsteady with the rocking motion of the swelling sea, their hellish journey was just beginning. Horses love routine. They love being in a settled environment. 
they don't like pleasant unpleasant surprises you know they don't like the the the, the shock they don't like you know sudden noises or, or whatever yeah very very easy animals frighten them to get a fright very very easy thunder and lightning no you're supposed to put in hostels when it's there if you can get them in in time but they could go anywhere from it very very easy frighten them does Right, it's an awful shock to their system, like. You know, they run wild, blind. If you, uh, they were galloping full force, that's, they says that they can't, they're blind, they run blind. If very upset, they mightn't eat. He may not eat for four or five days. Lose the world away. But they would have to adjust. They would have to become accustomed to unpleasant surprises. There was no choice. So the horse were retrained, actually called standing fire. So what they would do is they would fire guns close to the horse one day and they'd move closer and closer and closer and they'd bring older horses in to company. The new horse would say, God, what's that noise? And he'd see the old horse didn't flinch. Oh, must be okay, so. And this is how they, they would train to stand, stand perfectly still when artillery was being fired or rifles or machine guns were being fired. That was the time we were in, the horses were needed. They were needed to pull carriages. They were needed, like, to carry soldiers, like, you know, they were needed to carry equipment, caravans of equipment and guns and all to the front, across muddy fields, across b- bad tracks, like, you know. More shells were discharged in the 35-minute bombardment ahead of the Battle of Neuchapelle in March 1915 than in the whole of the Boer War just 15 years earlier. You know, when you think about something like the Battle of the Somme, I mean, there was hundreds of thousands of shells. I mean, they had to be transported somehow. Ammunition like that is very, very heavy. The only practical way was to use a horse. Supply horses running shells to the guns in strings of horses were stumbling through ever more difficult terrain as the use of artillery intensified. The wire and the mud, the shell holes and the moonscape Hard enough for men to cross it, but horses carrying 17 stone of equipment and, and man and, and equipment would be very, very difficult, you know. So it's huge wear and tear on a poor old horse. Horses were issued with gas masks following the introduction of poison gas by both sides. Troopers were instructed to put the mask on the horse first. The men could adjust their mask, but the horses were unable to convey if they needed help. You know, there's lots of stories of, of the bonds that the horsemen would make with their horses. Jack Seeley describes how he saw many men giving their lives up for their horses. A horse stuck in mud, they'd jump in up to their waists themselves to try and save the horse and maybe get sucked under the mud themselves. The mud and cratered landscape was not just a physical threat to the horses, but also a breeding ground for discomfort and disease. The constant wetting of the hooves had disastrous consequences the feet can kill the horse. Everyone said, no foot, no horse. The horse will perish and die if the feet aren't good. You know, if there's a minor change in the circulation, you get drastic changes in the structure of the foot and you horrible situations like laminitis or, you know, infections in the hoof. And so you end up with this sort of case of hoof horn and the foot within it can literally step out of that case. You know, if anyone's ever had a nail torn off their finger, well, they have a, a hint of what it's like for the horse. Worse than that, it has to do so while suspending 500 kilograms in the air. When they were injured, uh, you know, badly injured, depending, they would be put down or they might try to rescue them. They loved their horses. They were very important to them. 
Horse trailers were first developed as field ambulances for wounded horses. And they did everything they could to make the horses comfortable. Don't let the horse suffer. The, the veterinary hospitals, the horse hospitals, were just as clean and as well looked after as the hospitals for the men. 78% of horses treated recovered and were sent back into action. The biggest killer of horses throughout the ages has been deprivation, starvation, if not bullets and bombs. Ensuring that there was enough fodder was a huge challenge. Horses eat ten times as much food by weight as a human being. And as more and more supply ships were sunk by German U-boats, horse rations were cut. It's a grazing animal, so it's meant to be nibbling small amounts of food over a long period of time. Any, any variation from that, either in absence of food or too much food or in, in you know, infrequent access to food, you get a um, digestive upset. Not all Ireland's horses could be sent to the Western Front. For without horses at home, the food for the horses at war and for the soldiers and for the civilian population could not be grown. They were depending on Ireland to supply food to them. That that was an important part of the politics of the time. The horse, the walk horse, was absolutely essential for that because how would you provide food with just shovels and pikes? The, the horse, like, was the tractor of the farm. It was most important. A horse, like, I mean, uh, the horse did all the heavy working for the farm, did the ploughing and the harrowing and, 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 and the sowing and the reaping and, and the binding, all that. The horse was the, was the power. And as well as that then, the horse was the transport. The horse was used for going to the creamery. The horse was going, used for going to the shop. A farm like couldn't exist without a horse. And it was at home that some of the Irish horses, which had been bought for the British Army, met their death. On the first day of the Easter Rising 1916, four Lancers from Marlborough Barracks rode past the GPO, headquarters of the rebels, apparently unaware of what was happening. Shots rang out and four horses and their riders dropped dead. Back on the Western Front, the cavalry on their hunting horses waited behind the lines to charge forward. The common denominator between the Norman Knight and the horsemen of the First World War was what was known as the shock cavalry charge. The idea of punching a hole through your enemy, a knee-to-knee -knee charge. So the horseman beside you, you'd be literally, your knee would be touching his knee. One general described it as the rushing wall, so that if you had a squadron of horses, they would occupy a line of 70 feet long by nine feet high, travelling at 10 yards a second. The infantryman who's standing facing this had a choice that he had to stand his ground and be run over or he could run away. And the ground would literally shake under their feet as the horsemen approached. By the start of World War I, the horse had been used in battle for thousands of years. But this was changing. The rifle spelled the end of the horse's role on the battlefield, in my opinion. The threat of gunpowder came through the development of the musket. But in the early days, the horse could still be a match for this new weapon. You could fire about three bullets a minute out of a musket. The horse had a chance. If a horse was quick enough and he could gallop 100 yards to the infantryman before he could reload, he could attack him and take him on. But by 18, the 1850s, the rifle had kind of evolved as a weapon, a serviceable weapon in, in, in modern European armies. And the rifle had a distinction of being able to fire a bullet at a much further range with great accuracy and great 
speed and power. A good infantryman could probably fire between 20 to 20, 25 bullets a minute out of a rifle. The record was by a sergeant, he fired 39 bullets at a one foot square target 200 yards away in one minute. That's ferocious. This developed into what was called a mad minute, a huge volume of rifle fire. So when you put that into the context of a horse, the Lee Enfield rifle, for example, the, the, the manual for it states categorically that fire against a single horseman above 500 yards is rarely accurate. So that gives you an idea that anything under 500 yards was a, was a fair game for a rifleman to have a go at. They were actually told how to shoot at a horseman. If a horseman was trotting, you aimed half a length in front of the horse. If he was cantering, you aimed a certain distance less. The horse would have moved to where the bullet was going to arrive. At the Battle of Byzantine Ridge, 1916, the British attempted to make a breakthrough using cavalry. The Germans decimated the oncoming men and their horses with machine gun fire. The breakthrough when it came was led by tanks rather than the cavalry. Tanks utilising the new caterpillar tracks developed for use by agricultural machinery and armoured against machine gun fire. At the outbreak of the war, the tractor was, was making inroads in agriculture and during the war, the tractor had a huge role to play in being much more efficient at growing food. It was not just on the battlefield that the horse's role was being challenged. The invention of the tractor meant that farm work could be done more efficiently. One of the problems with the tractor in Ireland was the fact that early tractors had what they call road wheels and field wheels. When you were going on the road, you had to change the wheels from these, they were called spade lugs. They were like spikes that stuck out the side of the, of the wheels. They had to be changed. So this wasn't really practical in Ireland with our small fields. Like places like America and Russia, the tractor was much more effective. So again, this is where the horse started to get challenged because the tractor was just much more efficient at, at ploughing. Its famous Ferguson 20 was about five times more efficient than a horse. The tractor didn't get sick, it didn't have to be fed. He had all these benefits that the tractor could bring and, and again it challenged the, the role of the horse. During the First World War, the thousands of Irish horses that went to the battlefront lost their Irish identity, being absorbed into the British Army mixing with horses from all over the world. But in the aftermath of the war, Ireland would be an independent state with its own army and the horse would help define it. When a horse joins the army, he, he joins the army for life. Every horse, just like an individual, a man or woman, every horse has a number, rank and name. So we give them all the time that they want to reach their potential. The Irish horse is only used in one capacity in the modern defence forces the Army Equitation School, headed today by Lieutenant Colonel Brian McSweeney. We're here since 1926. We were established to promote Ireland and the Irish bred horse, and that's the reason we're still here today. In those first few years, the school played an important role in demonstrating Ireland's independence abroad. We were a fledgling state, only four years old by the time the school here was established. At that stage, the only international, uh, foreign international competitors 
were probably horsemen. And it was, a, it was a visual sign of a new nation with uniformed people riding on Irish horses, competing in places like Madison Square Garden, the White City in London, Wembley, Ostend. Big international shows where all the other nations and their armies competed in regularly. And now we were a part of that and we were competing on a, on a level playing field with all these other nations. In today's modern defence forces, horses do not feature on missions. But in some ways, the care and maintenance of the armoured vehicles is not unlike that of the horses they replaced. My name is Squadron Sergeant Michael Doyle, here in Carborough Barracks in Rapmoyens. You're in the, the parking area of the 2nd Brigade Cavalry Squadron, and this is primarily um, where we would park all our military vehicles that are assigned to us. Where you had horses previously stored before, this is now where we actually store our motorbikes. Today we've evolved from the horse to the mechanical horse, our armoured vehicles are parked uh, in a shelter up on the square and beyond that building there. Whereas the horses, like, you know, I mean, like you're, you're, you're talking about blacksmiths, the constant feeding, the constant watering, yeah, the location to secure them. A lot of the vehicles, there is very little maintenance in them. So nine or ten times you can probably diagnose I mean, the issue with the vehicle when it does break down and the lock support can commit with the part and possibly repair it on the side of the road. Where if a horse broke in a leg, it probably had to be put down and that was it, it was out of action. They're constantly trying to um, evolve the truck as such the military roles. You see there now with the with the ground clearance, like and I mean if you're out on the ground and it, it's after heavy rains and all that, you can get bogged down, hence you've got the cross-country tires on that vehicle. You've also got the, the, the protection for the engine. You can see the shield there just below the bumper which protects the sump of the engine, I mean, to give that ground clearance. Though the Irish Defence Forces use motorbikes and armoured cars, one army has continued to buy Irish horses. Jilly Connors and her family provide horses for ceremonial duties to the British Army. We'd have to train them, stand properly, not just with one leg resting or anything like that, you know, on all four feet, you know, because that's the way you show a horse. One of the horses trained and sold by the Connors family, Sefton, was to have a difficult future, caught up in the troubles. Jilly remembers his early days. Yeah, well, I used to watch him out in the field um, when I was in the kitchen. We were half a dozen other ones, but you could pick him out straight away. He had great personality and good-looking, and he knew he was. They took him. There was no question that, that they wouldn't. This is David Davenpower with the news at 6.30. First with the main developments, Cyril Smith. Nine people have been killed, eight of them soldiers, in two IRA bomb explosions in London. Seven horses had to be shot because of their injuries. It was I can hardly remember it, but I don't want to remember it very well. It was just so sad. A number of guardsmen near the end of the column were saved from serious injury because their horses took the bulk of the blast. According there were horses and soldiers lying on the ground, either dying or dead. And uh, over in the park, you can just see uh, top haulings or covers covering the bodies of the horses, and presumably any people have actually been taken away by now. There are, of course, a mass of police, the whole of the area... I mean, horses don't fight, you know. They're, they're not used to cruelty like that. Moscow Flyer has rambled over to say hello. Moscow Flyer one of the greatest steeplechasers of all time. From the Caramee Fair to the remount centres of the First World War, 
and on to the show-jumping arenas and racecourses dotted around the country. The Irish horse has been on a journey of evolution and shifting attitudes to its importance. The love of the horse was founded in an age of sportsmanship, of, of daring do, of risk-taking, of everybody being connected to the land. You know, a hundred years on from that, it's a completely different world. This massive half a ton of, of, you know, flesh and bone with the curious eye and the, the inquisitive ears and the, you know, the noble demeanour, this is a friend for life. For many of the soldiers of the First World War, their horses were indeed a source of friendship at a time when nerves were tested beyond all compare. But what became of those noble animals once the war had ended? The, these horses weren't wanted. A lot of them were slaughtered for meat um, because the army didn't want to feed them. Um, so having done their duty, they were kind of you know, thrown on the scrap heap. And it's the fact that the horse is so innocent in it all. It's not of his making, you know. It's man, men doing this that, that he's to suffer that type of outcome, you know. And it's, it's quite upsetting when you think about it. Most horses didn't come back from the war. The horses which were likely to come back were officers' horses, special horses that were part of them, that they would have hunted with and they would have known all their lives, you know, they would have known for years. And a lot of the really bad ones were used as food. People were starving, they had no food um, because their farms were devastated and they needed the horsepower as well. If any of the horses were useful, they needed those to restore the farms. So they stayed on and fed the French one way or another by either slaughtering them or using them as workhorses. 1918, November 11th, Armistice Day. The war is over on the Western Front 256,000 horses have been killed. <laughs>